In this week's Hashrot, uh we deal with the whole idea of leprosy. And the story that came to mind was Naaman. We're all very familiar with the story. So I just went back over the story and just read through, clicked off one piece at a time to see if I can find some jewels there. And boy, did I ever find some jewels. Okay. Now, what do I mean by this is I call this Naaman a pattern for 21st century redemption. It, is, it fits so perfectly what we have observed in the last decade. It's, it's beautiful. In some ways, it's almost prophetic. Okay, so if you mind, let me share this with you for a little bit. Um, the most interpersonal relationships in the story of Naaman and his affliction with leprosy are characterized by a show of power and suspicion. That statement tells me right away there is something that that parallels to what we have seen in the relationship of the non-Jew, righteous non-Jew, and the Jewish people and Israel. I want us to take a moment, and we're going to look at each one of these parts of the story, and you're going to see the pattern, and we're going to then see the end pattern of what is what I believe is to let us know what is going to actually happen in a redemptive time. Remember you have the bloated egos of the foreign king and also Israel's king. They were concerned about going to battle with Naaman's boss, the king of this region, which we'll name him in a minute. And the kindly concerns of the servant and the young girl in Naaman's house, his servant, who accompanied him to the land of Israel and the prophet Elisha, Elijah. Let us follow the story that unfolds that we can understand what are the significance. This is really interesting. The young girl. Who is this young girl? Say again. She was a Jewish captive. She works in Naaman's household. She's a servant to Naaman's wife. Sets a plot in motion. When she tells when she tells Naaman's wife about the prophet who is capable of curing Naaman of his leprosy. Now we we have discussed leprosy in the in the context of Jewish law and what that represents lashon hara. But there is a there is a gemara. I mean, there's a, a mishnah that talks about that in the end of age, the righteous non-Jew that comes to Torah will become like zeratz to the Jewish people. What? What's zeratz? Like a skin condition, right? It's going to expose some things. It's going to irritate. It's going to cause them to have to reconsider their level of purification in the world. This is huge. Think about this. I wish I had the source, but hopefully maybe later I can find the source and we'll put it in. But the idea is that the, the, the Gentile nations that come to Torah will become like skin tzaratz to the, to the Jewish people. Well, lo and behold, who has tzaratz in the story? Naaman. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And as a matter of fact, he's a prominent Gentile, a general in the army of an opposing uh, opposing army to Israel. 
So when he wants to come see Elisha, Israel doesn't look at him in favor and go, oh, great, let's welcome him. He wants to be a righteous non-Jew. As a matter of fact, Naaman reports to his master, the king of Amran, the rumor that was received in his ears and later, instead of consulting the king of Israel and asked him if there were any substance uh, to the rumor, sends him an aggressive letter by the way of Naaman. And he quotes in 2 Kings 5, 6, he says this, Now when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent my courier Naaman to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. You see this sort of demand. Sound like something Palestinians or Sudestinians would do to, to Israel, right? I'm going to demand you to heal my servant. The king of Aram takes the trouble of informing the king of Israel that Naaman is the courier in order to establish a precise domestic foreign hierarchy. The letter is harshly phrased in order not to request and notes that Naaman has already set out on his way and will arrive without further advance warning. Nevertheless, the king of Israel is expected to carry out the order forthwith. So, what we cannot ignore is the very fact the reason why this has become such a troubling troubling situation, the tide of righteous non-Jews coming to Judaism, is it's troubling to the hierarchy of Israel. It's troubling to those in the place of power and authority. Why? Because we represent nations that have tried to destroy Israel. We, as the and for again, America, we are the melting pot of Germans and Irish and Catholic and Methodists and we're of all these people and none of us, at least until just recently, really try to endear ourselves to the Jewish people. The church, Christianity is making a, a marked effort to do that. But then yet there's a fear that this is just a ruse to evangelize or to missionize them. I understand that, so do all of us in this class. But in reality, not every Christian is trying to missionize Jews. But at the same time, the problem comes with the barrier that is produced, that is that is presented and introduced to the righteous non-Jew who has left the Vodazara, who've taken on the Shavuot Mitzvot and want to draw close to Israel. They have this whole problem with the what the hierarchy of 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 the nations has presented to Judaism, and so we see this, even though Naaman himself was not hostile, he was just going to try to get this leprosy taken care of. It says that when the king of Israel got the letter, it says he rent his clothes and cried, Am I God to deal with death and give life that this fellow writes to me to cure a man of leprosy? Just see for yourself that, that he is seeking a pretext against me. Does this sound familiar? It's exactly what the Jewish people have been saying about the righteous of the nations that want to come to synagogue and to Torah, to study Torah. Nah, they're here. They're here to missionize us. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Yehovian from Torah of Chesed said just a couple of weeks ago that when we first went over there and I spoke, he said it made him quite nervous because he's like, mm, not sure that I want non-Jews to come to my synagogue because it's just too much trouble. What's the pretext? Are they trying to invade to to uh, to dissolve or to water down our culture and our traditions? Of course, he's found out later, after three years, that's just the opposite. And I would think the same would be with Rabbi, uh, Rabbi uh, Wobi and Torch and many other rabbis in our community. 
they realize, no, this is not the case at all. But I can guarantee you that this very thing was in their mind. Am I God to try to fix every non-Jew in the world? I've had Chabad rabbis tell me, I'm too busy trying to get Jews to be good Jews. I don't have time to mess with the goyim. You know what? I understand that. I do understand that. But this is almost a prophetic message straight from the story of the text of the Kings, in which the king of Israel says, who am I? I'm not God. I can't save everybody. And that's true. But the only problem is this. is that the Jews have been given fiduciary responsibility to be priests to the nations. It's not my responsibility. It's not yours. It's their responsibility. And until they realize that that's their responsibility, their response is going to be just like the king and just like Elisha. Did Elisha go out and greet him and give him a big hug? No, what did he do? Yeah, he stayed in his house and sent out a messenger. He didn't even go greet the guy. And then when he told him, what does he tell him? Go deep, dip seven times in the Jordan, which was a muddy mess. How did you feel the first time that a rabbi told you, do seven and go to heaven? You felt like you were dipping in mud because you just left some religious construct that you figured you were getting ready to embrace the glory of Hashem and the Torah. And they said, I'll just do seven and go to heaven. It's like you had to hold your breath just to try to conceive what that even means. But yet Naaman did what he was told to do. And this is what's powerful. The reason why that we know that Naaman had a revelation and an understanding and was taught by the servant of Elisha is what happens after this. Now, let's see this. This is an extreme reaction of the king of Israel a frightened, suspicious person. He rins his clothes and marks, uh, marks of mourning refers to the king of Amran as in hostile, hateful terms. He called him this fellow. The righteous non-Jew has had to deal over the past two decades with a lot of passive-aggressive attitude from the Jewish world. That's changing, okay? It's changing dramatically now. But this is part of the process. Okay, this is not negative. I'm not. Spe- I'm not speaking negatively toward the Jewish world for that. I understand it. Just like the king of Israel, he thought this king has a pretext to invade us. What he was thinking, I'll send my general over, and then when he gets lost or he doesn't get healed, it'll be a pretext to go to, pretext to go to war. Remember, in the back of the national conscious of the Jewish people is there's always a pretext to what the goyim are doing. I understand that. I get it. But things are changing. It could be. It could well be that the king of Israel understood correctly the actions taken by King of Amran, for the young girl had told the uh, told of the prophet uh, in Samaria, Second Kings five three, and had not mentioned the king of Israel. Perhaps the king of Amran is ta- uh, taking advantage of the situation in order to participate in a diplomatic incident in which the people of Israel could pay the price for their failings. Right now, there are those within the Hebrew roots and Christian movement that are taking advantage of this open door that's starting to open to the righteous non-Jew, and they do have a pretext. They have a pretext to bastardize Judaism. And and we need to make it clear as the righteous non-Jew that we're not 
that's we're not going to stand for that and we're going to expose that. At the same time, there are those people in those communities that truly are seekers. They are really seeking and want to know. And that's why we have to, and the TV has to be a, a beacon of light to them and let them know that we're here. He turns directly, not to Naaman, but the king of Israel, and says, Why have you rent your clothes? Let him come to me, and this is Elisha, let him come to me, and he will learn that there is a prophet in Israel, 2 Kings 5.8. Elisha's objective is clear, to show the commander of Amran's army that in Israel, the spiritual reality is different from that which was previously encountered. Thank God for Rabbi Abraham bin Yaakov. Thank God for Rabbi... Wobi, and thank God for many of the great teachers of Torah in our country that have seen this and realized that there's a spiritual shift who are saying, let them come to me. They're going to see that there's something spiritually different. It's already happening today. Naaman rides up to the prophet's house and with his horses and chariots, the symbols of might and power and of his status, but is but to his astonishment, he is disappointed because Elisha doesn't even come outside of the house to greet him. Instead, Elisha sends a messenger who relays the name and instructions accompanied by the promise of the prophet, go and bathe seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. The Navim, the prophets, talk about a time when the people of the nations will come and say that we have inherited lies from our fathers, that we need to be cleansed of the imperfections and the impurities that keep us from God. What was Tzerat's about? Tzerat's was about the perfection of the human, of the being, to draw close to Hashem. What ails the people of the nations? That they have spiritual impurities that keep them from approaching the, 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 the glory and the presence of Hashem. They have a Vodazara, idol worship. They conduct themselves in immoral ways. They are not just people. They, they, are, they have lying tongues and mouths that speak lush and horror. These are the tzarats of the nations. They need to be cleansed. But the only way that they can be cleansed is by dipping into the water of Torah. And for us, the seven mitzvahs that are required will cleanse them all. Isn't that beautiful? They will cleanse every human being. And it's not that hard. Every human being has the opportunity to be a tzaddik. I had this great conversation with a wonderful guy from uh, New Orleans who's in the process of conversion and actually kind of thinking about what he's going to do, whether he wants to stay B'nai Noach or convert. But we were talking about the idea from Rabbi Nachman of Brislav and also the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Cham Lizato, who talks about that every person has the ability to become a tzaddik. And he's like, well, I don't, how, how is that? I said, well, you got to understand, to be a tzaddik means to be what you doing extra more than what is required of you makes you the tzaddik. Now, if I was a Kohen, what's required of a Kohen to be a tzaddik is much more expected than for me to be a tzaddik. But yet I am a tzaddik, according to Hashem. That means that if I approach God and take on the Shavu Mitzvot, and I, and I do more to refine my character and refine my heart and to walk in spiritual purity, then I can be considered tzaddik. It's incredible. Naaman apparently took offense in his own work, her person, and in the, in the name of his country, he mentioned the great river of Damascus and scoffs at the prophet's instruction. Does this sound familiar? When we're told to take on the Sheva Mitzvot, what do we do? 
Look, you don't understand where I came from. I came from a whole religious construct that had everything in order. And if we didn't do this and didn't do that, then we would go to hell. And you're telling me all I need to do is this and I'll be, quote unquote, a close relationship with Hashem. Sounds like muddy water to me. It doesn't sound as fine and refined as the river in Damascus. Sounds the same response. Later, Naaman gives in to the implore of the godly servants, goodly servants, and his great surprise, he is completely cured by the water in the river. Henceforth, he becomes confirmed admirer of the prophet. Now, this is what is amazing. His entire tone changes. Returning with his entire uh, um, entourage with him, and he returns to the, the man of God, he stood before him and exclaimed, Now I know there is no God but uh, but in, in the whole world except in Israel. So please accept my gifts. So he wanted to give gifts to Elisha. Now I'm going to say something that's going to be hard. Gosh, I hope, hope my Jewish friends don't take this wrong. There will be people in the Jewish community that want to take advantage of non-Jews to take their money. And they want to take their money in guise of giving you great gifts of education. Torah should not be charged for. Now, mind you, there is nothing wrong with giving to a tzaddik that teaches you, okay? That's not what we're saying. And we're not saying that a rabbi that gives his time in a community should not be remunerated and paid for. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if anybody comes to, to offer you some grand deal for a grand amount of money, start looking the other way. Because Alicia did not do that. Now, a servant kind of wanted to get into the little, little deal. But what happened to a servant? He got leprosy. Which I find it interesting that, in essence, his servant, in taking money for, for giving him the basic laws of Torah to the non-Jew, law-